and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and colleague, Derek Davison, who is getting ready to go on a family trip for Thanksgiving. Derek, how are you doing? How, are you uh, stoked? Are you ready for the holiday? I'm, I, oh, I'm so ready. Well, it, it, I, I appreciate Thanksgiving because it's the one day of the year where you can eat bread, basically, uh, <laughs> stuffing, and and not get looks, you know, like, and not feel horrible about uh, horrible yeah, about it. Not feel bad about it. So I, uh, I have to I say, I that. I wish there was more of a cream pie associated with Thanksgiving. I'm a fan of cream pies. I don't love uh, fruit pies. Uh, pumpkin pie is okay, and pecan is great. But a nice banana cream. Oh man, let me tell you, sweet potato uh, is good. Sweet potato, I think, is better than pumpkin. Yes, sweet you, potato is excellent, actually. But all um, things considered. I asked my partner to consider asking her family to do a cream pie, and she said no. So, you know, it's already starting off at a loss here. <laughs> uh, my wife's family has some kind of pumpkin cheesecake hybrid thing oh, that nice. they sometimes make, and that's pretty good. Yeah, I think I've had something like that at the Cheesecake Factory, it's not, my favorite it's not restaurant. Like, <laughs> it's not like pumpkin-flavored cheesecake. It's something different. I can't it's a really hybrid. describe it. It, yeah. It's syncretism, cultural syncretism. Exactly, exactly. Like as we talk about on the uh, Maccabee episode. So uh, yeah, everyone's speaking of, we've got a special Hanukkah episode coming out tomorrow that I really uh, I really thought was fun and you'll get the real story of Hanukkah and the geopolitics and all that stuff. But why don't we turn to what's going on in the news today? And particularly, there's been some developments on the uh, Russian-Ukrainian uh, front. So Derek, what's been going on there? Well, this has been going on for a few weeks. Um, the the U.S. is convinced that Russia is building up forces along the Ukrainian border. Again, this would be the second time this year that they've done this. Uh, the first time really didn't amount to anything. They built up some forces and had a military drill and everybody went back to base. And they've, they've had, though, like, I mean, for years at this point, some counterinsurgents um, support for various um, factions in Ukraine, correct? This has been a long-standing issue. Yeah, the extent of that support is unclear. I mean, back in yes, 2014, always, when the, yeah. the Ukrainians overthrew their uh, Russian-friendly prime minister, um, the, the Russians moved very quickly to seize control of Crimea and annex it. Um, that's not recognized internationally, but, uh, you know, the Russians certainly recognize it as part of Russia now. Um, and, and they've provided some support to Russian, Russia, Philic, Russian speaking, whatever you want to call them, uh, separatists in uh, the Donbass region in Eastern Ukraine. Again, the extent of that is disputed. Ukraine, you know, basically considers them and the West basically consider the, uh, the separatists uh, a proxy for Russia and the Russians, um, say no, <laughs> that, that, you know, they're just looking out for their fellow, you know, Slavic Russian speaking Slavs who uh, are right. being badly repressed by the, the vile Ukrainian state. So, uh, you know, it's dueling narratives and, and who knows really one way or the other. It is way more effective to clearly make Moscow understand that a new stage of aggression will have dire consequences for Russia. Yeah, they've been I mean, they've at least been, you know, kind of supporting those breakaway 
uh, republics for uh, several years now. Uh, what happened earlier this year, again, like I said, was was sort of a, a major troop buildup in the vicinity of the Ukrainian border that wound up turning into a, a military exercise, the annual an annual military exercise that the Russians hold with Belarus, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it didn't amount to, to much more than that. But there is. Uh, apparently, either a new buildup. This is the U.S. claim that there's they've you know started building up forces again. The Ukrainian claim, I think, is a little bit different. They're saying that uh, really the Russians never left, despite you know having given orders to to return to base. They really never uh, left their positions, and they've just been sitting there like ninety to a hundred thousand soldiers. Um, y- you know, it's it's possible, of course. You know the the hair on fire interpretation of this is that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. Uh, and the Russians, of course, you know, insist that they're not. They, in fact, have uh, suggested that the Ukrainian government and the United States are whipping up fervor about a non-issue in order to cover for some nefarious plan on the Ukrainian government's part to, to launch a full-scale invasion uh, of eastern Ukraine later this year or perhaps early next year. Um, again, you're in the realm of kind of competing propaganda narratives, and it's hard to know uh, who to take seriously. There's a fear of a, maybe an imminent invasion. Maybe Russia is just positioning its forces, looking ahead a few months, and planning an incursion later. I don't. I don't understand what the the gain would be for Russia here. I think they have Ukraine. Uh, pretty well in pocket at this point, uh, but uh, who knows? It's it is possible the Russians have been angry at um, Ukraine's military relationship with the West. Um, you know they, they're constantly saying that NATO. You know, for, if Ukraine were to join NATO or to join the EU, it would right. be a, a red line. They've sort of changed that. They sort of moved the red line a little bit in their rhetoric of late. And now it's you know just even if if there's an escalation in military cooperation between Ukraine and, and Western countries that, you know, now seems like it's uh, the red line. They're also angry, I think, that the Ukrainians have bought, have purchased drones from Turkey. Uh, Turkey's sort of the, the world leader in cheap uh, but effective drone technology at this point. And they're happy to sell it to pretty much whomever. Uh, and the Ukrainians have started using their Turkish made drones uh, in operations against uh, the separatists. And that seems to have also kind of irritated the Russians. So it's, I mean, it is possible that they're kind of provoked at this point to, uh, to the point where they're ready to, to go into Ukraine and do something. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of this, but, um, you know, certainly so what is the, the, what is the U S claiming its interest is in, in, in all of this? What, what is the U S interest in all yeah. of this? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Good question, right? Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's sort of like, what is the U.S. interest in, you know, I list any number of places that we have decided we have an interest in them. Um, I mean, the, the claim, I think, is, you know, that Russia is a revanchist, right, expansion, okay, classic, expansionist empire. And gotta, doing, gotta stop him, baby. Gotta right, Vladimir him, Putin yeah. is, you know, Hitler reborn or whatever, Napoleon, right. I don't know. Um, so there's no real to, strategic logic. You know, we can't, we can't, we must not allow a Ukraine gap or something like that. Uh, so, you know, it's the usual rhetoric um, as to, you know, what the actual interest is. 
you know, I mean, they're a good customer for weapons at this point. Um, I, beyond that, I really don't know. Um, there's, yeah, I, I, I really couldn't say. And, and I, frankly, if it came down to a, a, a shooting war, I have a very hard time believing that uh, the U.S. or NATO would would get involved in a serious way, other than like sanctions. Um, because yeah, that's I that's my I don't know what the the interest is to risk a, a serious conflict with Russia. No, there's absolutely no um, no interest in that uh, whatsoever. Uh, so speaking of Russia, why don't we go over to their Nord Stream partner? Correct me if I'm wrong, Derek, but uh, in, in in Germany uh, and the partner. new. The, the new German uh, coalition government that has just been formed in advance of the Thanksgiving weekend. That's probably why they did it. Yes, the Angela Merkel era is uh, another big Officially. step closer to being over. Well, I mean, they have to do the official kind of uh, right, yeah, oh, changeover, enough, yes. but in parlance the in the Reichstag. But um, yeah, the the three party coalition led by the Social Democrats, um, who's I guess presumptive chancellor now is Olaf Scholz. Um, they negotiated, they've officially unveiled uh, an agreement with the Green Party uh, and the Free Democratic Party. Uh, the Greens are obviously uh, a little further to the left. The Free Democrats are more of a libertarian-ish party, but they, they yeah, have Classically with, liberal, as, yeah, as one might say. Yeah, classically liberal, exactly. Um, but they have worked with the SPD and the Greens at, at the state level in the past. So um, this isn't a, a completely unique coalition. But they unveiled their agreement just uh, Wednesday. Um, I should say, for anybody listening, we're recording this on Wednesday because we didn't want to do it on Thanksgiving. And so if, you know, Russia... No, well, is, one has, of us didn't want to do it on Thanksgiving. Well. One of us was willing... <laughs> <laughs> to do whatever it took to make a great episode of American Prestige, but so okay, yeah, it's Derek. me. It's me. Uh, don't anyway, don't like, gaslight you know, our audience. <laughs> if if Russia has invaded Ukraine by the time you listen to this, that's that's the reason why we're out of date. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah. So they just unveiled it today, Wednesday. Uh, as you read it, uh, listen to this. It'll be a couple of days ago now. I don't know all the details because it is just uh, has just been announced. Um, I do know. Uh, I have seen. That they're gonna they're gonna phase out their their plan and their coalition agreements to phase out coal uh, by 2030, uh, which is uh, substantially earlier than the Germany's previous commitment to phase out coal. I think uh, f- eight years earlier, um, and they're gonna legalize marijuana apparently uh, for recreational use. So uh, you know people may be uh, looking to book a trip to Germany down the road here. Uh, beyond that, I don't know um, what they've agreed to. Um, but it, Well, it'll it be mean- interesting, particularly with the nuclear issue in Germany, which is very fascinating, and there's a lot of different coalitions there to yes. see what they do with that in relation to coal. And We should yes, probably do a exactly. future episode on that now. How they, how they transition off of coal will be very interesting to watch. Merkel... I think put a put a pretty uh, strong cap or ban on on nuclear power after she did uh, yes Fukushima. famously yeah um, so that'll be interesting um, but yeah it's more I mean I'm more kind of looking at it in the in the end of an era sense at this point because I really don't know what these guys are going to do uh, in power so it'll be interesting to see um, what that what that results in. So why don't we wrap up with um, our friend, President Joe Biden, um, f- uh, future podcast guest, tapping the Strategic Petroleum 
reserves and what that means and what that suggests about gas prices. And what, before we go into that, Derek, why don't you just try to explain a little bit what has been the issue with gas prices in the last few weeks? Uh, well, they're quite high. Um, th- they've gone up uh, quite a bit. I think uh, I saw something that said uh, the average price is, I think, above three dollars and forty cents uh the national average in the u.s which you know it was like two dollars and ten cents or something a year ago so i mean the 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 price has gone up uh pretty steeply uh mostly this is uh you know sort of the return to pre-covid or pre-covid lockdown i guess life and and the demand for gas rising even as um, the major oil producers the opec plus uh, group have pumped the brakes on restoring the supply or production to to pre-pandemic levels because oil producing countries and large companies have not ramped up the supply of oil quickly enough to meet the demand they they famously last year cut production by like 10 million barrels a day, um, you know, in the midst of the the pandemic when demand was very low. Um, And they're sort of slowly ramping back up. Um, There's a, I think, uh, A, you know, they've kind of gotten used to high high prices again on oil for oil. uh, So they'd like to keep that going. And B, there's a concern about uh, going too fast and potentially flooding the market, which would not be good for anybody or for them at least. Uh, so yeah, the, I mean, the, the controversy here is, uh, basically gas prices are high and Joe Biden's approval ratings are low. And those two things are probably related on some level. And so, uh, you know, Biden has been and his administration have been blaming or sort of cajoling, uh, the OPEC plus nations to speed up uh, their production increases. They've been refusing to do that. Uh, they've now shifted, I think, to, to blaming oil companies a little bit or gas companies uh, for sort of taking advantage of the fact that, you know, the, the oil shortage is in the news or the uh, production shortage is in the news and sort of using that as an excuse to jack up prices even further uh, beyond what the, the shortage would dictate. Um, so they, they've been kind of sniping at, at, at everybody. And this now, you know, the this idea of uh, tapping into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been on the table for a while. Uh, what's interesting about this, uh, the deal that they announced this week is that it includes similar moves from a number of other countries, India, China, uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, and the UK uh, are all going to sort of coordinate their own uh, petroleum, you know, kind of they're going to dip into their own petroleum vaults and and, uh, release. I don't know how much I know India's announced it's going to release like 5 million barrels. The U S is doing 50 million. Uh, I don't know what the other countries are doing, but, but it's, it's uh, the coordination is interesting and should, uh, you know, give this uh, a little more, I guess, heft, uh, than uh, it might otherwise have, because it really, although these sound like a lot, like 50 million barrels of oil sounds like a lot, it's not that much. It's really not, uh, a, a huge amount relative to you know how much we use. Does this indicate anything larger geostrategically, or is this just a bunch of domestic governments who are freaked out that oil prices are high and they don't want to like lose their election <laughs> or lose their legitimacy? Does this indicate anything or not really? Because people will initially think of the '70s and various oil shortages, right. and, you know, long lines at gas stations, and we're all driving for Thanksgiving. Well, not me. Some of us are, Derek. Um, but so, um, how does it? Uh, yes. So, what does this mean? 
Uh, that's an interesting question. A, a few of these countries, the, you know, Biden certainly, um, the, the you know, Boris Johnson in the UK, um, these these guys are are in political trouble right now. So um, if you ask me, I think it's you know a, a group of countries that are worried about the politics mostly of this, and there are just have just agreed to come together in kind of uh, a panic and try to do something to, <laughs> to at least tamp down on oil prices. But I have seen it suggested that this is really a significant development. This is sort of the formation. I, somebody, uh, some oil analyst, I was reading a, an article a while ago, called it the anti-OPEC plus, um, not in the sense of opposition so much. I mean, sort of more in the anti-matter sense, I guess. Uh, it's like <laughs> it's you, you've got a group of oil consumers, not oil producers, although the U.S., you know, depending on the, the state of the shale oil business, uh, could go either way. Uh, but here you've got a group of basically consumers who are trying to step in where the producers have refused uh, to do something about oil prices. Um, the, the inclusion of China and the fact that China agreed to be part of this, I think, is meaningful on some level because there is no political risk to Xi Jinping, for example, uh, at this point, he's about to be, I mean, he was just kind of enshrined in the, the Chinese Communist Party Hall of Fame alongside uh, Mao and Deng uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he's, you know, on tap to be, uh, to get a third term as party leader and president. So the fact that they're involved, it, it does kind of suggest that there's something a little more geostrategically relevant or, or significant happening here. I, I really uh, haven't really thought about what that could be. Um, the the practical, in any practical sense, this isn't really going to do very much. I think it'll probably stabilize oil prices through the holidays, which is really what the Biden administration at least wants. Um, but it's not, as I said, it's not a lot of oil. It's, you know, going to be, we're going to go through it very quickly, um, belching all the, the wonderful carbon into the atmosphere, by the way. Um, and, you know, by, by early next year, the effect, I think, will probably be gone. That so said, Derek, you're recommending that listeners hoard? Yeah, definitely. It's time to crack each other's skulls open and, and feast on the goo inside. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, it's you know, it's a political move. It's it's likely to have some temporary political impact. Maybe have some impact on prices. Uh, so you know, that's that's pretty much all Biden wants out of it. Um, and then he'll you know, hopefully, as production ramps up next year. Uh, the the price will come down. Uh, it's not going to be in time, I think, to save the Democrats in in November. Uh, they've got a whole host of reasons. <laughs> oh no, why they yeah, are why they are going to be accarimed. <laughs> they're looking at a at a bad outcome, but uh, it could help uh, you know bring Biden's approval rating up a little bit and and get the press off his back. Uh, well, on that happy note about our continuing to drive the Cadillac into the brick wall of climate change. Everyone have a very happy Thanksgiving uh, with your family, with your friends, um, with anyone that you celebrate with. And we here at American Prestige uh, will see you next week. Bye. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I'm here uh, with the still recovering from his bout of COVID, uh, Danny Bessner. Danny, are you, uh, how are you doing? Let everybody know how you're doing here. 
Uh, I'm definitely doing better. It took a, a turn for the better in the last, you know, day and a half. Uh, my quarantine doesn't end, I believe, until Tuesday. So I'm, you know, writing it out. But, you know, things are feeling better, getting ready for uh, Thanksgiving and the holiday season. We've got some fun episodes coming up, you know, a Hanukkah episode, maybe the first of its kind. Uh, <laughs> That's going to be fun, though. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll figure out how to do a Christmas one. I was thinking of maybe doing one about when NORAD used to trace Santa. Uh, there you a nice <laughs> imbrication. Of the national security <laughs> state and uh, popular culture, but yeah, we'll, we'll have some fun things. So you know, I'm, I'm getting back to the podcasting minds. Derek has been very anxious and angry at me, so I just like pleasing pleasing Derek. No, no, so I'm happy it's about that. Good. It's all good. I'm not. I'm not that that big a, a dick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Danny brings up a, a good point. It is Thanksgiving. Uh, unfortunately, I guess you'll be eating Thanksgiving dinner and still not able to taste that's very sad actually um but this is uh, our thanksgiving episode and given that it's thanksgiving weekend um i thought we could do a show that maybe isn't quite as uh present day focus so if folks don't get to it this weekend it's something you could come back to uh later on and to do that we're very lucky to be joined uh by patrick wyman patrick is uh Boy, all kinds of things. <laughs> Patrick's a historian, uh, podcaster extraordinaire. Uh, if you've heard his series, uh, his old series, The Fall of Rome, if you haven't checked that out, go listen to it. Uh, his current series, The Tides of History, excellent stuff. Uh, he has a Substack newsletter called Perspectives Past, Present, and Future. Uh, that if you're not subscribed to that, go do that as well. And uh, he's got a book, The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years that shook the world 1490 to 1530. I'm going to actually hold this up on the uh, the dream of having uh, a YouTube channel uh, <laughs> that we will one day show video. You can see I have my book here. Um, <laughs> someday. It's coming someday. Uh, so, Patrick, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, it's, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. Uh, so actually, I, I actually have a question uh, I wanted yeah, to start so our, off our with. A resident historian would like to know how to get out of the history. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got a question, a career so, question. Patrick, I have a question, a, a question about career. But uh, more uh, more, more generally and, and more seriously, I am interested in this question of public history, particularly in the age of podcasting. So you're someone with a PhD. I'm someone who's recently gotten you know, more public. I'm doing that show on Chapo called Hinge Points, which is really a public history thing. So I was wondering. Plug there, folks. He's working. On yeah, this plug. plug. I just yeah. work it in. You know, I'm professional, um, <laughs> kind of. Uh, so, Patrick, I was wondering um, what what made you go into public history, and what do you think that you can do as a public historian that you weren't able to do as an academic historian? Okay, so there there are a few different things. Um, the first is that it was pretty clear to me by about three years before I finished that I was not going to be like an academic uh, for a few different reasons. The first was the the basic math. I went through and I counted how many uh, open tenure track job positions there were in my field and how many new PhDs. And I figured that I had about a one in 16 shot. At getting that. So that didn't seem like a particularly good thing to chase, especially because like I knew far more dedicated and frankly better historians than me who weren't getting jobs. And I'm like, oh, if these people who are actually 
good at being an academic can't be academics, then like that just doesn't seem like a good thing to put all my eggs in that basket. Uh, at the same time, I was uh, I was smoking a lot of reefer and doing a lot of combat sports. Uh, so I, uh, I started a kind of a parallel career as I was finishing my PhD as a, as a sports journalist, uh, covering mixed martial arts basically. And so I did that the last couple of years that I was in my, in my doctorate. And when I finished, I got, I, I got like a couple of essentially full-time freelance offers. So I'm like, well, you know, I'll just like, I'll go do that for a little while and I'll kind of figure this stuff out. Like when I finished my PhD, I was so fucking glad to be out. I hated it. Um, my advisors mostly sucked, uh, <laughs> um, it was it was not like a great like you know like some people do their PhDs and they come out like of this wonderful apprenticeship program with these lifelong relationships with uh, you know with faculty mentors that was not my experience at all um, so I would uh, say that's probably not most people's experiences yeah. frankly and and it's absurd to say otherwise I feel like uh, the the sheer power that graduate advisors are given is absurd and oftentimes makes education worse. And some of the hazing that I've heard professors done now having been on the other side and being tenured myself, it's just, I, I think it's like a lot of people try to get out their own insecurities by treating people below them really poorly. And it's something I see again and again. Oh, dude, I had a ongoing thing with one of my, uh, with one of my advisors, one of the people on my committee. Um, he, he, like he and I had gotten into it like four years before my dissertation defense about some, f some summer funding that I was supposed to get that he instead kept for himself and used for a trip to Paris. Uh, so I was upset about this as you might expect. Cause that meant that I had to like sell my motorcycle and do all sorts of like terrible work to like support myself for a summer. Um, he saved that up until my doc, until my dissertation defense, when he told the other members of my committee that I had, never sent him anything prior to the defense that he had never read anything that I had basically um, shut him out and try and like dropped the ball so this was his first time seeing any of it in the defense which wasn't true I like I had sent him of course not. Many that would have been crazy yeah, yeah at many unless you had points. a death wish I had something similar during my mm -hmm. defense uh, someone on my committee said that I didn't use the word elite um, mm -hmm. even though like literally it was, it's uh, the in the title of several chapter sub subsection so I just think yeah. that the authority whenever you concentrate yeah. authority like that with absolute with absolutely no repercussions you're gonna get uh, nothing good but but let's let's uh, yeah. stop yeah. this trip yeah. down memory lane so yeah. so you made the well, switch I, and I, I want to uh, sorry Derek you well I, I think this is fascinating because we have uh, somebody who, got their PhD and went into academia. And we have somebody who got their PhD and made the choice not to go into academia. And then we have me who panicked and didn't get the PhD. It's like a nice cross section <laughs> of experience here, I think. Uh, you know, the whole range of graduate uh, program life. Oh uh, yeah, I, I have like I have basically no regrets about having left. But like, yeah, I kind of just stumbled into doing public history because I knew how to do a podcast from having spent a lot of time doing podcasts for sports journalism. And I'm like, well, I have a vague idea that history podcasts are a thing that people do, and so because I was kind of working in media, I knew people who ran media platforms, and um, I was able to get the product out. Um, frankly, wider than it should have gone on the basis of how good the, the first few episodes were. And kind of, I just learned on the job for years and years and years. And I've gotten really lucky. I've gotten some really good opportunities to, to put stuff out there. And I just kind of, I try and bring 
just cutting edge scholarship in language that people can understand it. And I think that's the key to doing public history. Is just so like, that's the question that I wanted to talk about intellectually because I talk about this with Matt Chrisman a lot because he um, – does the type of big thinking that just isn't allowed in the academy. And I was just wondering if you could comment a little bit on on that, because there was a space 70 years ago for like a Polanyi, you know, like really big thinking about and type of stuff you do in your book, you know, like answering the biggest question of the last 600 years or trying to answer in the various ways. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk about the intellectual difference between, you know, your hyper-specialization in Rome versus what you could do now. I really find that compelling. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely the most freeing part of not feeling like you have to answer to panels of colleagues at conferences. Like I don't when if if I do a podcast episode, I can feel free to riff and kind of and, and like you know the only person that I'm responsible to is my is well I'm responsible to my audience to not like say things that are obviously and blatantly wrong. But like I find that you know. If you have an audience of smart people who who knows you and trusts you, you can feel free to kind of bounce theories off of them and say, this is why I think this. Here's my thought process. Here's the evidence I'm drawing on. Here's a kind of a big idea. And if it's wrong, it's okay to be wrong. Like that's that like there's something worthwhile in making the attempt in a way that I feel like academics, just because of the nature of the 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 culture around it, not even like the strictures of the discipline so much as the culture of academia are terrified to be made fools of in front of their colleagues to to suggest something and get torn apart and like that that's a fear that gets instilled in you really early in graduate school is like you're in a seminar room and you say something and everybody looks at you like you're a fucking idiot you know like and that's and i feel like that fear is omnipresent in academic writing. It's it's present at the sentence level in the way that academics construct sentences. And, you know, it, it's like, it's a learned behavior. And I think you can only do big thinking type stuff if you, to some extent, unlearn it and say, look, like, I'm not responsible to them. Like I can, like I'm responsible to my audience and I'm responsible to myself to, to do some academically honest work, but like, you don't need to feel afraid. Yeah, and I just want to underline that. I do think fear is one of the prevailing emotions in modern academia. I, I think ultimately because of the job market, which is understandable, people are constantly freaked out about their material conditions as they should be. But even with scholars who are like I, I full professors, I oftentimes find that there's an, uh, a substrate of, of anxiety and fear, which is kind of funny because this is literally, there's no consequences. And if anyone <laughs> should know that this is all dust, it's historians. And it's ironic because one of the things that, uh, that have made me that has made me less fearful is the fact that like I read all these intellectual debates from the 30s and the 40s where people are like heated they're screaming at each other and literally no one knows their name today no one knows you know no one cares this is all dust in the wind you know to quote a great uh, thinker and so it's ironic that people particularly historians who should know that this all basically doesn't matter um, are so fearful but um, yeah so sorry about that Derek why don't we let's get to the book well so I had I had, <laughs> I, had Patrick, more, wanna, I had yeah, I had please. one more follow up on that which is so so I just read um, the late David Graeber and uh, David Wengrow's new book, The Dawn of Everything, which is very much an attempt to do some actual big thinking. And they're very open about, th like, throughout the throughout the text of the book about how this used to be a thing that people did. They asked big questions, and and they were wrong. They were often wrong. And 
the dawn of everything is, I think, often wrong about things. But that's okay because in the process of figuring out why a big idea might be wrong, it forces you to sharpen your own understanding of things. And so, like, to as you know, as kind of an entry point to to the book that I just wrote, like, it's okay if I'm wrong. That's all right. Like if you, if you can tell me exactly how and why I'm wrong, that's great. You have learned something new about this period that hopefully will contribute to a better synthesis of, of understanding like these really big and important things. Well, on that note, why don't we get into the book, um, to cite my own experience in grad school. Um, and uh, Patrick, you, you've probably, I think I've already, uh, quoted this line to you before, so I apologize. Uh, but uh, one of the, the the sentences, like the phrases that stuck out, that, that still sticks with me from uh, some of the reading I did in grad school, was a, a line by uh, a professor named Marshall Hodson, who was the uh, founder of the the Islamic Studies program uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, sort of one of the the big movers in the world history movement you know, that that uh, kind of tried to shift things from history of Western civilization to, to more kind of a comprehensive historic, historical outlook. Um, and he wrote in an essay, um, I'm going to actually quote it here. Uh, in the 16th century of our era, a visitor from Mars might well have supposed that the human world was on the verge of becoming Muslim. And this always stuck out to me because it's true. If you learn, you know, if you, you study Islamic history um, by the, the 16th century, um, arguably the two strongest empires in the world, the two most powerful empires in the world, uh, were both in the Islamic world, the Ottoman Empire on the one hand, uh, the Mughal Empire in India, which was extraordinarily wealthy. Um, you know, there was the Ming Dynasty in China, obviously, you know, was doing its thing, but even the Ming Dynasty was in a bit of a lull. And certainly, you know, what he's saying here, Europe was not uh, it was a periphery. It was a, it really still looked like a periphery if you had dropped in from nowhere. Uh, of course, we know that the world did not become Muslim, and in fact, the world became colonized by Europeans. And what I what your book tries to get at is the answer to the question of why. Uh, this is the the concept known as the Great Divergence, um, and I, I'd like to start there actually uh, with you sort of explaining what that is academically. Um, it, it, you know, just the the uh, the basic outline is why did Europe become Europe in, instead of a sort of peripheral land of hillbillies. Yeah, this is this is kind of one of the central maybe the central historical question of the last you know five hundred years is how did Europe become the center of global empires that managed to at least to some extent impose their dominance on much of the rest of the globe? Um, and there are a number of different approaches to answering that question. Um, they they vary in terms of the period of time when they place this divergence. There are some people who think the divergence started. I mean. In the Roman Empire, there are some people who think the divergence started in the in the early Middle Ages, in the High Middle Ages, around 1500, or some people say not until as late as the Industrial Revolution. That it's only really with the Industrial Revolution. Um, those are, I think that that tends to be a much more common position among economic historians, uh, who, or at least a certain branch of economic historians, who really see the productivity gap between. Um, Europe and the rest of the world that arises be mostly because of the industrial revolution as being the the core of the issue, like the real crux of the the real crux of the problem. I, I mean, I think the easiest way to answer it is 
to look at when you start seeing Europeans elsewhere in the world doing the things that they for which they become um, infamous or famous down the road. And for me, that's right around 1500. So I think that's a pretty good time to focus on answering the like to start answering the question of why. I mean, that may be that may be a little bit reductive, but you got to start somewhere. And I don't think you can say it's when the frontiers of Europe as a as a kind of a a cultural um, religious uh, space are shrinking, which they are throughout most of the Middle Ages. Um, I don't think you can say it's only when there are already European controlled outposts throughout much of the rest of the world, as there are around 1800. Um, for me, that's why I ch- that's why I think 1500 is such an attractive kind of place to start. It also has the benefit of being the period of time when lots of stuff just seems to happen kind of around the same time. I think you're, you're always looking, uh, as a historian, if you're trying to, to look at periods, um, what separates one period from the next, you're trying to look for, I think, like clusters of changes that happen more or less simultaneously. You get a whole bunch of them in like the late 5th and early 6th centuries, which seems to mark the beginning of the Middle Ages. Um, you get a whole bunch of them around 1800, which marks the beginning of, the, which marks the, the beginning of modern Europe. Um, you get a whole bunch of them, I, I guess, probably around 1990, if you want to look at the, the recent past. Um, but again, you get all of these around 1500. I, you get the printing press, you get the Protestant Reformation, you get a whole new era of, of state-sponsored warfare that, that runs throughout Europe and beyond. And then you get the voyages of exploration. You get the most obvious manifestations of what will eventually become the European colonial presence elsewhere. And what I really like about you, fo- you focusing on this particular period is you get the, the big ideological shift and you get the big material shift. The material shift being literally the, the extraction of lucre from the so-called new world, which is foundational to capitalism, right? In some sense, this is explaining why capitalism now. And then you get the ideological shift with, you know, the Andersonian, uh, you know, focus on the printing press and then in particular the Reformation. And so you get this relatively concentrated period with an enormous material and enormous ideological transformation, a a dual revolution akin to the Hobbes-Baumian revolution of the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. One thing I wanted to ask you to comment on, and this is, I find, um, probably the greatest benefit, at least for the history of the North Atlantic world, um, engendered by the global turn taken in the historical profession in the 90s and 2000s, is really viewing Europe not as a space of of developing nation-states, even though it was, but as a particular internal polity. Because I do think that's right, and you're a Roman historian. I think if someone was looking back on this era in a thousand years, they'd be like, the North Atlantic world is a meaningfully coherent political space, uh, and you're exploring why the North Atlantic world expanded across the globe. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that, um, where you think the utility of viewing this as one essentially political unit versus viewing it as a series of discrete nation states helps contribute to your narrative. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the the, the best answer to that question, which is a really good question, uh, has to do with the relative weakness of state power in this in this region. So each indiv- you have lots and lots of competing would-be state actors stretched all over this space, None of which are really able to do all that much, right? Like that's that if there is a kind of a um, uniting political culture to this region, it's that 
it's the it's a game of compromise between kings who between people who want to be kings and all of the people who can actually help them do king stuff. So if you want to be a king, you want if you got if you're going to be a king, you got to fight wars. But you can't just go out and raise taxes to do that. You've got to work through a whole succession of other actors and institutions in order to do that. It's this process of negotiation between various levels of political hierarchy and the fact that those various actors can talk to one another outside the bounds of what we consider to be a, a single state, like that there is no single one. There are all of these actors who have relationships that stretch beyond the bounds of any one political unit into others. So if you're the Duke of York in England in, 14, in 1470, you're going to have political relationships that extend into the kingdom of France, into the kingdom of Castile and Aragon and the kingdom of Denmark that, are, that go all of these other places that have absolutely nothing to do from your perspective with your relationship to the King of England, right? Like, so that's, it's the fact that you have all of these relationships that are paralleled by commercial networks of exceptional density. And and that's, what's also so interesting. These, these, these mirror states of like the Dutch East India, you know, the various companies Mm -hmm. that effectively form states, a Hanseatic league and things along those lines, which are forming at this time. And I love that about your book. It's like these different potential sovereignties at this moment is really so interesting. Yeah. There's no reason why what we think of as the nation state um, was going to win. And in fact, you can ask the question of whether it actually did, given the number of various actor uh, of other kind of institutions and groups that benefited from and drove the eventual formation of nation states. I mean, this is the big thing about, you know, like fiscal military states is like, who actually wins from that? Is it is it the agents of the state or is it the financiers and merchants who are who who um, are financing the like these bounds of continuous war, these bounds of continuous warfare um, who are getting to, you know, who are getting their guaranteed interest payments on state debt there? I mean, it's a good argument to be made that they're the ones who are actually winning and not, quote unquote, the state at all. Like there's no it doesn't make sense to to view the state in um, uh, kind of in isolation from those other groups. Well, that that takes us into uh, sort of the the thrust of the book, which is the thing that's underpinning all of these innovations: the printing press, the the age of exploration. You know, all of these these things that are happening in this you know forty year period of time is the emergence of something like something we would recognize, I think, as a modern financial system. Can you, uh, first of all, was this your, was that your sort of uh, hypothesis going into the book? Or is it something that you were, was there like an aha moment where it all kind of clicked into place and you said, this is the key? or, Or how did that work? It was more of an aha moment because um, what I noticed first was the kind of density of networks, the density of political networks, the density of trade networks um, that seemed to tie all of what is essentially Western and Central Europe into into a single unit um, that what made all that work was money. I mean, it's that you could you that you have. And it's easy to miss this, I think, because of you have a bewildering variety of different currencies in use. You have what seem to be different and sometimes barely connected economic systems operating at different levels of the economy. You have you have this like elite economy of of trade and financiers, um, you know, like kind of merchant bankers, like people who are at the very top who are lending money to kings. And then you have, you know, a, a subsistence economy at the very bottom uh, with people who barely seem to interact with commercial markets at all. 
But that's an illusion. It's an illusion to think that they're separated. Um, it's an illusion to think that the prevalence of different currencies means that they're separated because you start to notice all of the various tools that people have for mediating between those different levels. You start to notice that, oh, the peasants are actually producing things for uh, for commercial economies when they're for uh, trade networks. When, when peasants are doing business with each other, they're not using money. They're employing a pretty sophisticated understanding of credit. And it seems like that kind of conception of what money is, how it works, and how it's embedded in relationships between people that stretch across space, that seemed to me to be the really uniting factor, that whatever else was going on, whatever other boundaries there were in this world, this was something that all of these folks seemed to share in common. And that's really, credits are really just networks of trust. So there's something that's coherent, that's uniting these groups across space and time. So my question is, um, what's your major explanation for what phenomenon undergirded that trust? Is it Christendom? Is it a general recognition that they're engaged in a particular project? Is it the Muslim other? What creates these networks of trust along uh, across relatively large distances? And as you as you gesture toward a, sp- a pre-state period, now if you're a noble and if you're the Duke of York, there's something that connects you, whether it's familial or cultural, to the King of England, right? Um, that's not necessarily true if you're. Um, in Aragon or or uh, or one of the German principalities or what have you. So what is the cause of that trust? Because it's so crucial to your book. Yeah, I mean, it, I, f- I wish I had a better answer for that part of it. Um, it's one of those things where like, I think you can see it as it exists. I think you, c- you can put your finger on it. But the, the root cause of it, I, I, f- I think, is so bound up with the kind of unique circumstances that make Western and Central Europe what they are. So I think Christendom is part of it. I think I think it's the I, I think it really comes down to the density of networks and the density of contacts between places. Um, I've, the existence of Latin as a common language, uh, the uh, kind of constant travel and trade that, that that bound that world together. As to what the baseline cause of it is, I honestly don't know. Um, That's a huge question then for future historians, right? Like you could probably do a study from 800 to 1400 on the development of trust in the, in the medieval world. And that would help this there. I mean, there are, yeah, there, there are a lot of different potential answers. It's mostly that I'm just not sure I like any of them on, on their own. Like, I think you can talk a lot about, I, I think if you were a, um, a political scientist or an economist, you would probably look a lot at, at kind of shared institutions. But but again, that comes back to to trust, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't matter um, if you identify an institution. There has to be some sort of underpinning for it, right? And and in this case, which what you're talking about, trust, it seems to be there. People all seem to have this kind of shared belief that if they loan somebody money, um, that that they'll get paid back. And I. You know, I don't know. I I don't know where the I don't know where the answer lies. Um, like yeah, like I said, I could speculate, but I'm not sure that I would like any of those individual answers enough. That's that's interesting. I mean, I wonder if if some of it emerges by necessity. I mean, one of the unique conditions of of Europe in this period is that Europe was on the world stage at least mostly a consumer, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Europe produces things. Uh, mostly agricultural things that wind up being traded locally, but for the big ticket items, for the luxury goods, the the order of trade works, you know, 
money goes east and products come west. And I, I wonder if, you know, part of the reason you don't need to think about issues like this in India, for example, is because you're you've got an empire that's wealthy enough that you can build the peacock throne, which is the ridiculous, I don't know if people are familiar with the peacock throne, but it's the ridiculous chair with uh, just an v- incredible number of gems embedded in it that uh, the Mughal emperors used to sit on. Um, or or pro- I don't know if they actually sat on it, probably wasn't very comfortable. But, uh, the, you know, the, the idea being that some of the, these instruments come out of a, a, a necessity rather than, uh, you know, just sort of a, a any idea that they're a good idea, like a good thing that's going to have some uh, larger repercussion. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the the real baseline arguments to this book is like nobody was thinking like, ah, let's come up with these sophisticated understandings of credit um, because we want to do it. It's because nobody had coin. And they still wanted to do things like invest in printing presses or kings. I mean, the biggest thing is just war. Like kings wanted to make war and they never had cash for it. So they've got to take out loans to do it. And at some point, if you're going to continue making the loans, you've got to be sure that you're going to get paid back. And so like, but in the absence of actual money, you've got to have some kind of shared understanding of what uh, of what money is and what kind of um what kind of relationship you have to it and what kind of relationship it has between these various parties if it, if you're going to do anything at all like because it seems fairly clear that like money wasn't going anywhere so that meant they had to start thinking differently about what money was and and how it could work and maybe it's possible so to so Dan, Dan, to answer to to get back to your question i think it's likely that the answer goes back into the early middle ages where we do not have the kind of evidence that would give that would tell us how people are thinking about this stuff in more or less the the 6th centuries between the end of the Roman Empire and when you start to get like notaries accounts from Genoa right so like there's probably something really important happening there in terms of how people are thinking about money and how people are thinking about their relationships to one another in a market where i mean the evidence for commerce in early medieval Europe is just horrible. It's like we we have no account books. We have nothing. We have very little that would tell us how this stuff was working on a day to day basis. And even things like charters are mostly documenting land transactions from a from a monastic point of view. So like we're not getting any of any direct windows onto this uh, onto the a commercial world that might show us the direct antecedents of the one we see pop up in the in the high and, and late middle ages right we don't have the quotidian evidence uh, well let's let's uh, your point about Genoa leads me to a question that you know one of my fields was in military history and then one of the major explanations for expansion was essentially the geography of Europe um, well first the geography of Italy and then the geography of Western Europe essentially forces types of innovation that engender colonialism, right? You're searching for new markets. You're searching for competitive advantage. You're literally doing better ship technologies. You have John Brewer's famous book, which I'm sure you're aware of, which is The Rise of the English Bureaucratic State, is essentially caused by the necessity of managing war. So I was wondering, what's your take on that, like the classic explanation of colonialism, which is war leads to colonialism, leads to capitalism, to put it very simply. I think it it, to some extent has... Has the has the order reversed that I really think it's about the money and that like it doesn't matter what kind of ambitions you have 
to to make war or do voyages of exploration if you can't pay for them, if you can't incentivize the various parties to take part in your venture, in whatever that is. And that was the thing that was so striking to me in looking across this period was that like there were plenty of people who had ambitions that they couldn't carry through. There were like, I think the 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 classic counterexample of this whole period is Charles the Bold, the Duke of Burgundy, who really had ambitions to form uh, to form his own little kingdom, um, it, it, you know, stretching from the Low Countries all the way down to, to Burgundy. Um, and he he went about doing it in what looks like a pretty rational way, right? Like he he's buying claims to rights, he's buying territories, um, he, he puts into being a professional army, an actual standing professional army that's right at the cutting edge of military technology of the day. Um, you would think if you're looking at this at the time, this is the future, right? And it doesn't work because he runs out of money and because he loses the trust of the merchants and townspeople, mostly of the low countries who were financing this, right? Like, so this is how he ends up, you know, on a, on a cold battlefield in 1477, getting his head split open by a halberd um, with like 3000 guys outnumbered five to one because he couldn't pay for anything anymore. And I've always thought of the example of Charles the Bold because it's like, it seems like you look at him and you're like, this is how it should have gone. It always seemed like Charles the Bold should have been the guy that like if you're looking for what is what is the future of this world, that should be it. And it wasn't because the money never came through for him. And there were lots of people who had ideas for commercial ventures around the time that Columbus did. There were lots of people who wanted to do long distance trade. It didn't work. The What made Columbus you know, the first one of these guys to go out there and uh, to go out there to the West was the fact that he spent years and years and years cobbling together the funding um, to make this happen. And so it, it when I was thinking through all of that stuff, it, it occurred to me that that was the common thread. It was who's got the money, who can who can make the right kinds of deals with the right kind of people to put these projects together. It was the same deal, same deal with the printing press too. When you look at the early history of printing, it's all about who is who has the access to capital to see these projects through the lean times in order to actually get to the point where you're making money. Um, and it just struck me that that was the real common thread that tied all of them together. So let's speak about capitalism. So the big three contenders for where capitalism begins are Italy, the city-states of Italy, and particularly Venice. You know, that's been a big move in historiography. Venice as the center of world trade. Uh, there's the low countries, like you suggested, where you get these formations of capital. And then there's England, which has, uh, uh, over the course of the 16th and then early 17th centuries, develops the state power to manage uh, these types of capital exchanges. So based on your research, I mean, the real answer is all at the same time. But if you were to identify a, um, a particular origin point of what becomes our modern capitalism, 21st century capitalism, which one of those would you identify and why? Because this is obviously the big question that we've all been asking for 500 years. Okay, so this so this is a bit of a cop out answer, but I think it's all of them, and I, and I'll, but I'll tell you why I think it's all of them, and this gets to kind of the basic point is that space is discontinuous, right? Like the like and and that's especially true, I think, of a kind of commercial space that existed in especially in late medieval and early modern Europe, where it was <clears throat> where you have these nodes that are extremely connected to one another. You have like, so London, even in the, even in the 14th and, and 15th centuries, when England itself is, is something of a, is still something of a backwater. Um, 
England is highly connected to the Low Countries. It's highly connected to Calais. There are communities of expatriate merchants there. You can cash a you can cash a bill of exchange from Venice in London, no problem. So you have these islands of capitalists spread throughout Western Europe that are all tightly bound together through a whole bunch of different mechanisms, the physical movement of goods, but especially through these these kinds of um, commercial connections and financial connections. So it, it develops in all of these places because they are all to some extent the same place. Like they, it's the same people moving back and forth between them, operating the same commercial networks with the same tools. And sure, there are regional variations in bookkeeping practices. There are regional variations in the specific relationship of these merchant financiers to the political authorities in that place. But they're all taking cues from one another. They're all intermarrying with one another. It's all the same. It's the same kinds of networks of people with regional variations rather than regional networks that are kind of loosely tied together. If that makes, if that makes sense. And that foreshadows the operation of 21st century capitalism where people often say someone in New York has more in common with someone in London than they do with someone living in a housing project. And, you know, Know, 300 yards away. And that's really interesting. And this is something Marx talked about a lot. And I wonder if this is just inherent to the formation of capitalism. Very compelling point. Yeah, I think it is. And and and, and we can find we can find parallels for this going back a very long way. Um, I think you can definitely make this argument for the Roman Empire, right? That like if you're if you are a a um, shipmaster in Carthage, you have way more in common with somebody who's doing that same job in Ostia, who's doing that same job in Tarragona, who's doing the same job, at, you know, at the port of Antioch or Byzantium or Alexandria. You are part of this broader trans Mediterranean network of commerce um, and and kind of thinking about how you're going to finance these things. Um, these are the places that you're familiar with. If you're going on these voyages, you're taking one of these big, you know, kind of state subsidized ships around. Same deal. That's These are the spots where you're going. These are the spots you know. You probably, like if you're a shipmaster in Carthage, unless you have invested some of your profits in a rural property, you don't know anything about Carthage's rural, hinter, rural hinterland, you know? And I think that that's also true of a lot of, like you look at the fancy merchants of London, unless they have managed to, buy some rural real estate as a as a means of kind of diversifying their portfolios which a lot of them do they spend all of their time shuttling back and forth between london and calais you know it's not like they they don't go to the cotswolds people from the cotswolds come to them one of the things you said earlier as we were talking about um you know networks of trust and and how credit emerges kind of struck me you talked about kings needing to borrow money to wage war um uh, borrowing money, uh, even for kings, even at the level of kings, is, was not, uh, you know, didn't emerge in 1490 or the, the, you know, the end of the 15th century. It was something that had been going on for some time prior to that. Uh, but it, it, lending money to kings always strikes me, you know, having like uh, read a little European history, I guess, uh, always struck me as a very dangerous thing. Um, because if you lend too much money to the king and the king can't pay you back, the king can have you killed or he can do other things to you. And I, I think I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, the edict of edict of expulsion uh, in England in 1290 with, uh, you know, kicking the Jews out because the Jews were the moneylenders and uh, they were very unpopular for that reason. Uh, I'm thinking about Philip IV uh, liquidating the Templar order in, in the early 14th century because he owed them a lot of money and he didn't want to pay them back or he couldn't pay them back. Uh, um how do we get from this point where 
kings are borrowing money, but the kings are still sort of in charge of that relationship. And, and you're, uh, you have to be very careful about, I think, uh, kind of lending money to kings, uh, to where we get to in, in your period and moving forward, where I think you, you know, you make the argument, you couldn't make the argument, uh, that it, it's the financiers that have the power now. It's not the kings anymore. Um, they're really, you know, in, in terms of that, that relationship, they're, they're sort of, uh, on top. What, what are the things that change over those couple of centuries? Yeah. So this is, you're absolutely right that like lending to kings and princes in general was a dangerous business throughout the Middle Ages. I mean, this is how the the largest commercial operations of the 14th century, the Florentine super companies, the Bardi and the Peruzzi, this is how they go under, right? Because they were loaning money to King Edward III of England, who decided that he wasn't going to pay them back. And so these, the companies, uh, the company, like these, these enormous commercial concerns that stretched literally all over Europe, they had branch offices everywhere. Um, went under because of these failed loans. Um, there were, uh, I mean, there were, you can, you can count dozens and dozens examples of examples of this throughout the middle ages. What changes are a couple of things. So first this is something that gets pioneered in the city States, uh, like the highly financialized city States, uh, especially in Italy, especially in Venice is a long-term interest bearing public debt, right? So you have, you just have, you consistently have a debt, uh, that it, that, but it's a safe place for merchants to park their money. So you say, okay, you you we're going to take out a loan at this rate of interest, and you're going to get you know three percent per annum back on this. And when you have enough trust between that merchant class and the government, which you get most strongly in city states because they're the same people, they're effectively loaning money to themselves and and guaranteeing themselves a return on that investment. Um, you can raise an enormous amount of money. This is how Venice fights wars against the Ottomans through the 15th and into the 16th century successfully is that they are capable of raising so much cash because the merchants of the city are willing to put their money into it. Um, the first that was not really possible for kingdoms up until the late 15th century. The first one to do it was Spain. They figured this out over the course of the war against Granada. And to me, this is the biggest thing that comes out of the, the long 10-year conflict to conquer Granada is that they they kept borrowing money. They kept having to pay it back. They kept borrowing money. They kept having to pay it back at these extortionate rates of interest. They figured out, what if we just keep the debt the whole time and sell shares in it? This is called the juro. It's the fundamental tool of Spanish state finance for the next several centuries. Um, but it's something that city-states had been doing forever. It just didn't scale to the level of a kingdom until the 15th, 16th centuries. Um, the only reason it eventually, it, it remains viable for Spain in the course of the 16th century is because they're getting these huge infusions of capital from the new world. That like it's just literal blood money going straight from the Inca, going straight from Atahualpa's uh, room full of treasure uh, to to paying financiers for the campaign to Tunis. It is a it's a direct thing. That's literally where the money went. Um, so, but that becomes more viable. You have these infusions of capital that are allowing um, these things to be to be paid for. This institutional arrangement becomes increasingly common. Um, and also, there were a few examples made 
that that helped kings and princes think hard about the consequences of not paying, right? So I think Charles the Bold was in a lot of people's minds because Charles the Bold um, was a direct ancestor of a lot of the, the kings and princes who were doing this, right? So they knew what would happen if they didn't pay their debts or if they didn't find some new way of, of paying these things off. You too could end up outside Nancy with your head split open by the Swiss. Um, you could end up abandoned by your mercenaries, which happens to the which happens to French kings in Italy a whole bunch of times. The Swiss come, they demand their money, they don't get paid, they literally just go home over the Alps, right? Um, and this, so you end up with this, in theory, increasing ability to pay for these things, but at points it just doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, the consequences are dramatic enough to figure out that oh, we've got to keep paying this. We can't just let the we can't just let the debts go. So that I think leads in naturally to the other half of the equation, or maybe not 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 half as such, which is Protestantism and the Reformation, which is the enormous ideological transformation of this period, where where you get the the final, I would say, final decline of the church as the authority in the European space with its sundering, and then you know the various German states that that arise as Lutheran, and then this spreads, of course, famously uh, Henry VIII into England. England and Anglicanism, and you and you get this sort of coming apart of Christendom and its eventual replacement with um, secular authority, with worldly authority as opposed to heavenly authority. So, how does the Protestant Reformation um, play into your story? And uh, could you comment on the Patrick Deneen tweet about? Did you see this about Amsterdam being? No. Uh, oh, he he has. A, did <laughs> oh, you see God, this, Derek? I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he has God. he has a tweet that basically Amsterdam is bad because of Protestantism. Um, I quote. <laughs> I am currently in Amsterdam for the first time, a city clearly built on ideals of beauty and transcendence. Walking around city center, I, uh, I wondered, is its descent into drugs, prostitution, and hedonism because or in spite of the Protestant Reformation? Discuss. So uh, where does the Protestant Reformation play into your story? How does it relate to capitalism? Uh, and why has everything gone bad since uh, since Catholicism uh, was challenged? <laughs> um, okay, so I think that the Protestant Reformation is it first of all you we have to understand both what ties it to the past and what makes it a unique kind of thing right so it's it's a deeply common occurrence in the sense that the whole history of the medieval church is the history of reform movements right that there's and what separates you know a saintly reformer from somebody who gets burned at the stake is some combination of their relationship to authority and their luck like when do you happen to be making this argument whom do you happen to be making the argument to and there are literally cases of like reforming figures having gone back and forth from being declared heretical to being declared saints which tells you that a lot of it is in the eye of the beholder. What separates, you know, somebody who's who's bringing needed reform to, uh, you know, to to God's church is, is uh, from from somebody who's, you know, gonna get uh, gonna get taken out the back and uh, and beaten to death for it is it's pretty thin. Um, and so so we have to understand Martin Luther's call for reform is nothing out of the ordinary. It's not like he's some voice in the wilderness who's like, ah, only I see the things that are wrong with the church. Like one of the people that he ends up debating with who gets sent to um, check to see like, is this person a heretic or not, had had written a critique of indulgences that was extremely similar to Luther's. So it's not like these ideas are coming up out of nowhere. He's very much a product of the, the atmosphere of reform that exists at the beginning of the 16th century, right? So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, something clearly does change. Something clearly does happen because this isn't like 
the medieval it's reformers not the Jesuits. Who had come before. You know, they you can't incorporate yeah, this Reformation right. in the same way you could with like you did like the yeah. church did the Jesuits. Yeah, and I mean, and I think the biggest differences are the the way that Luther was able to use the printing press. So it's not the existence of the printing press. It's the very specific relationship between Luther as writer and thinker and printing as a medium and an industry, right? So in in printing, Luther finds the medium to spread his particular message and also to just literally shitpost. Um, and conversely- <laughs> Shitposting printers- can change the world, Patrick <laughs> yeah. says. It's, 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 you're saying it's the only way to change the world. In fact, it's, it's, it's the only way to change the world in that particular, in that particular world. And, uh, and in Luther, this is the argument of Andrew Pedigree in his wonderful book, Brand Luther. Um, and I think it's just right is that in, Lu- so in printing, Luther finds the medium that suits him. It suits his skills. He's good at it. Um, he, it kind of makes sense to him in the same way that like Twitter makes sense to some people like printing makes printing, especially pamphlet length things makes sense to Luther as a way of getting his thoughts across. But also conversely in Luther, printing finds a bestseller. Luther is the first actual living writer who becomes famous and well-known on the basis of producing printed texts. He's the Patrick Wyman of the 16th century. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, like, there were a couple of people before this, like, er there's, like, Erasmus, right? But Erasmus is only famous to humanists. Right. Only famous to this very specific collection of scholarly figures who happen to be quite spread out across Europe. He's a living writer who makes a living as a living writer. Um, Luther is the first actual literary star. And whenever you have a, like a literary star, that's not just about what the message is. It's about the relationship of the person to the medium in which they're working and the people who control that medium, who are making money off it, being incentivized to want to spread that, right? Like it's not just some burst of creative genius that people fall in love with. It's like there's a mechanical process here and a series of incentives. And that's where Luther comes in. That's why, in my opinion, Luther is actually one of the very few indispensable figures in history because of his the way his weird brain worked and his just constant pugnacity and need to answer his critics. It turns out that that's just perfect for printers who have a constant need to keep the press churning um, and who need a, a, a an immediate return on their investment, which is what angry polemical pamphlets provide. So the, the message happens to get out. So this is a question that I have about causality. Is there a prime mover there? Because what you're essentially arguing is that the, the incentives of capitalism create a need to develop product and Luther provides that product. If there's no Luther, is there no product? Yeah, basically, that's what I think. Yeah, I I, I think that, the, that they are not separable from one another. Like, I think, and you can see the, the direct correlation between Luther's, between Luther's work and the development of the medium as a whole, that like, it's not just that Luther's work sells, it's that Luther creates a market for this kind of work that did not exist before, but which does after him. And so like, that's one of the really striking things about Luther and about the early Reformation, from my perspective, is that there's a clear point after which people are no longer into Luther, but they're still buying the product, right? They're just buying it from other people that they like more. So there's is so like Luther is the leading figure of the Reformation for like the first eight years. And then after that, he's just one voice among many. It's not that people are buying less. It's just they're buying less of him. They're buying more of other people. So could you then talk a little bit about, because I think this has relevance to, to today, is what does this say about the creation of a public and particularly a consuming public? 
Because right now we're talking at the very elite level, which is, you know, the artisans who run the printing presses and the intellectual Luther who creates the product. But who are these people who are consuming these things? And, and what is that connection between like the dopamine hit that you get from reading Luther and, wh- and what we have today? And I just mean, people have always consumed shit, you know, and this was yeah. something that uh, across space, but what makes this unique? Um, because this was a big question that uh, historians have actually turned away from, which is why a public, you know, what what, mm-hmm. what brings the public into being? So could you talk about that and related to consumption? Yeah. So this is another one of those questions, as, as, as you're pointing out, that like used to be something that historians and political scientists and sociologists talked a lot about was the creation of a public. And so I think that the public is all is, is to some extent a product of the medium, right? Like the if you that it's hard to have a public without a medium for the message for the message that they're receiving. So there are all sorts of publics in late medieval Europe, right? There there are urban publics. Um, there are there's the rural public that assembles for festivals, um, and I think to some extent what we see is the kind of community of people who become print consumers is the translation of what was basically the late medieval audience for preaching, which was huge. That was what people did. That was, you want to go to an event, we're going to go, we're going to go listen to this, um, you know, fat little Franciscan come through and talk to us about, uh, and talk to us about sin. Um, We're going to get the whole community together. There'll be beer. This'll be great. You have the what I think you have is the translation of that public into one that in, into a literate one, or at least one that is being read to, right? So you have this audience of people that is concerned about these issues, that's engaged in them, that wants to play a part in this. Um, we know this because they show up for these events, um, and they're now being reached through this new medium of print. So initially, sure, it's literate people. It's people who are in. Uh, it's people who mostly are living in urban, uh, in urban environments, a place where you might have a printing press, where maybe you're a clerk who works for who works for the Fugger family, something like that. You're in a job maybe where you need to do this. We know that liter- literacy rates are rising. But the fact that literacy rates are rising, there are more printing presses, doesn't explain the mass qualities of the movement, right? And so what I think it is, is people, it is not just people who are reading it for themselves, but people who are being read to, who are being, who are used to consuming this kind of content, essentially, um, in the form of a live performance, and now they're getting the content in the form of somebody reading it to them. So, you know, you only need one literate person. If you can read that pamphlet to 20 people, they too are participants in the message. Where where this differs is that each and every person who's getting read to or who is reading it is also changing the message along the way, right? So it scales in a way that I think um, the medieval sermon circuit didn't, um, that each person then becomes a theologian of, in their own right. And this is why the church was rightly worried about that, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. It, it devolves yeah, they, their authority. Exactly. But they, but before they became worried about it, they wanted to participate in it, right? So they tried to, like, in the early days of the Luther debate, like, Johann Tetzel tries to write a friend response of the to Luther. <laughs> friend, friend, <laughs> friend of the pod, Johann Tetzel. Uh, so he, so he tries to, he tries to write a response to Luther and get it printed. Um, so the, if one of his editions, nobody buys it. And the second one, a bunch of students at Wittenberg um, break in, take the, take the printed copies and burn them. 
Right. So like there is so like it's not just that like the church didn't recognize the importance of the medium. A lot of the figures within the church did because they'd been using print to do things like print indulgence certificates. So like they understood what the power of the medium was. It's just that a lot of people weren't buying what they were selling or they didn't have the right printers or the way that they were writing was not appealing to the masses. Sometimes they they tried to publish these things in Latin, which means you're inherently going to limit its audience. Whereas Luther's publishing in the vernacular, right? So he's he's automatically opening his work up to a wider body of uh, potential, not just readers, but potential listeners. So I think all of that stuff plays into it, and it gets you this it gets you this kind of broader, engaged uh, public that has interests and concerns in theological debate. So it's interesting because what you're saying is that, is then that the public basically emerges as a consuming public. Yes. So is that something different? Is this a different type of consumption? Is this a different level of consumption? How does that play in? Because I think, you know, we today are defined by consumption. So that's a very interesting question to me. Yeah, I do think this is one of those fundamental shifts. Um the when because it, I think when we when we when we talk about fundamental shifts in in history, they are often um, it's often not the introduction of a new technology, but the introduction of a new sense of scale that that be, that is the most important kind of differentiator of something new that happens. Like it doesn't like when the first time they stick the internet together, right? And you've got like six computers with people talking to each other. Like that's six people talking to each other with a computer, right? But if suddenly everybody has a smartphone in their pocket, it's not so much the smartphone as it is the fact that everybody has one, and now everybody has access to this. That changes that changes the nature and the terms of debate. Like when it was, you know, five percent of the American population with a dial-up modem. Even you're not operating at a you're not necessarily operating at a different scale. And I think that's what printing does as a as a technology in this period when it starts to spread. Is is the the scale of it suddenly becomes so much larger? And you can see this even with things like Columbus, right? Like the part of the reason why the Americas become a big deal is because Columbus writes a thing and that thing gets printed and printed and printed and printed. So the, the people knew about what it was that he was out there doing and, you know, what, like people were not necessarily surprised by this. A lot of people thought that there would be a continent there if you sailed, if you sailed to the West. So it's not, <laughs> not like Columbus, that. Though. <laughs> yeah, no, no, because Columbus was a dumbass. Um, Columbus was, Columbus was a, a real, a real dipshit. Uh, but but a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, of course there's a continent over there. Now we know it's there. We learned about this from this letter. Okay, off we go. Um, so I, it's just so deeply implicated in all of the rest of the stuff that happens in this era. Um, the, you know, the idea of changing people into consumers, I think, I think this is part of that. The ability to imagine yourself as part of a broader group that's 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 getting this message. I think is a key thing. Um, but then there's also the fact that like at a really basic level of consuming products, there's more there, because of the kind of increasing financialization that we see, it's easier to move products from point A to point B. It's easier to move consumer products over space. And that's one of the great unsung developments of the 15th century, honestly. Um, Nope. The 15th century gets no respect. And someday I'll come back to this. I want to write a book about the 15th century. But like um, the big development of the 15th century is just increased trade in bulk goods 
for the first time, basically since the late Roman period, you have vast amounts of cheap shit going from place to place in Europe because shipping costs have fallen. It's easier to move large quantities of things. And this is exactly the development that in the later 16th and into the 17th centuries leads us to the consumer revolution, that leads us to people being able to explicitly think of themselves as consumers of products and to form their identity on the basis of the products they're buying and and showing off, right? So this is... But this is predicated on this prior era of people being able to move stuff cheaply to be being able to transfer the funds necessary to move stuff cheap, cheaply. Um, so I think the connection of prints to that, I, it helps people it helps people understand the frontiers of their world more broadly. I would say that for sure. Uh, we're we're coming up on a, I think, point where we, we should wrap up. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, the, the sort of. The story that we learn about this period and beyond uh, in history is one of progress. All of these things, the printing press, the uh, even the Protestant Reformation, uh, even if you go to Catholic school, as I did, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the age of exploration, all of this stuff, the emergence of capitalism is all regarded as progress. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's self-determined. We want to think that we're living in the best time to be alive. And so we view whatever caused us to get from back then to now as, as progress, uh, leaving aside the question of whether it is or, or, or isn't really progress. Uh, one of the things I think that, that sets your book apart is that the awareness that this was not, these things were not progress for everybody. Uh, and that there were people who were left behind. There were people who were harmed by all of the the events that took place here. Uh, some of them, some of these groups, you sort of expect to to hear about in a book that's about uh, you know the the early 16th century, uh, the enslaved women, uh, you know peasantry. Uh, these are obvious, you know, obviously people that are probably going to be left out of uh, uh, great societal movements. But I, I'm curious, uh, as you were doing the book. Uh, as you were writing the book and researching the book, uh, when you you thought about or you you read about or, or you know learned about groups that struggled in these in these conditions, was there any were there any that sort of struck you as particularly um, interesting or particularly unexpected or that that you know in, in that sense? Yeah, I think the the most obvious one to me was was miners. Right. So and and you can actually you can actually see this very clearly in in the life of Martin Luther because through the through the figure of Luther's father, who's like a fascinating dude, um, Hans Luther. Uh, he was he was known as like a hard man and he had made his living as as an entrepreneur. Right. He's he is a mining entrepreneur. He's got some employees, but for the most part, he's out there kind of in the dark doing the work himself in this little out of the way mining town. Um and over the course of Hans Luther's life, the mining industry is essentially taken over by these larger, much better capitalized concerns. And so Hans Luther ends his life, um, so far as we know, working as kind of work, kind of working as a wage worker for one of these much larger mining concerns. And that was like a, that was a hard thing for people at the beginning of the 16th century to kind of give up, to give up your autonomy, to give up your sense of yourself as a, as a person on your own, especially for miners who are kind of independent minded folks. Um, you know, this is a, this is a hard thing to deal with psychologically. Um, but it's a much broader thing. 
um, mining becomes a huge industry in this period. It's it's this difference of scale, right? And it's a, scale, a product of scale that, that is a result of finance, um, that all of a sudden, if you can get a set amount of capital together, you can mine deeper, you can you can build pumps to get water out. It becomes viable to work seams that wouldn't have been viable before. The end result of this is something like a proletarianization of miners um, throughout much of Central Europe and and kind of into what's today Slovakia and, and, and Hungary. Like that these people had it okay. They were kind of independent workers and they get swallowed up by these enormous concerns that are directed from places like Augsburg that like the Fuggers, where they made their money was in mining. Like state finance was a thing they did. It was profitable for them, but mostly they made their money by being, by controlling, you know, 60% of the European copper market. And for them to control 60% of the European copper market, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of poorly paid copper miners who at various points tried to strike and had their and had their strikes put down with with pretty brutal force. Um, so this is so they're just one of these groups that ends up suffering as a result of this concentration of capital in the hands of people like the Fuggers and the ability. Like you know, a lot of people are going to say, "Ah, great, increased copper mining. We can make more bronze cannons. This is part of a military revolution." Um, but for that copper to come out of the ground, for the Fuggers to make huge amounts of money off of it, for them to have the capital to lend in the first place, there are people who pay the price at kind of the sharp end of that. Um, I think nobody want, nobody talks about the miners, but the miners had it bad. It sucked for the miners, and it got increasingly worse over this period um, for, for folks like them. I mean, I think even in the case of the enslaved um, and native populations where you are sure you're, you're like, there's an awareness that things went poorly, uh, for, for them. Um, I think we can still understate the extent of that, um, that like, you know, something like 20% of the, of the population of Lisbon, even by the time Columbus, uh, even by the time Columbus arrives there in 1493 on his way back from the Americas, something like 20% of the population of Lisbon is made up of, of enslaved people. Like this was this was already a trade that was going on at a high level. Um, there were there were a lot of people involved. We're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people even early on at this point. Um, like to some extent, that transformation of scale had already taken place. So I, I think. Even in the cases where we know that those folks have it bad, we've still got to bear in mind that there are a lot more of them than than we might think. Um, and, and like it's it's one of those things where it's easy to get lost in the immensity of numbers. But like, you know, you're talking eighty percent of the population of the island of Hispaniola dies within two decades. Like, these are really, really, really significant things. And like, I I, I hate it when you know it's that that. Steven Pinker, better, better angels of our nature shit where it's like, <laughs> oh, but, but look, but look, yeah. things are getting better. Things are getting better as if, right. first of all, the, the ones who don't have it better don't count. And second, as if nothing bad, as if nothing worse could happen as a result of your quote unquote good things in the future. Like, sure. You know, ah, we have nuclear power now, but ah, that's also bombs. So like, it'd be a hell of a thing to say, look at how good we have things right now. If a nuclear war wipes out all of humanity in the next 50 years. Like, did we really have things better at that point? Um, you know, so that's, I, I just think it's always worthwhile to think about who's losing out if somebody benefits or conversely, if we think of some, some period as being one of people losing out, um, you know, 
who benefited from that. Like, this is something I think about with the end of the Roman Empire all the time. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, like that probably sucks for you if you're somebody who's attached to the the Roman imperial court in Ravenna. But if you're some barbarian dude from uh, from Germania who happens to be really good with a sword, like you might end your life with a really nice villa. You're, you're soaking your feet in a bath. You've got like 500 peasants living on, living on land for you. Like that's turned out pretty well for you. <laughs> you know, The, the right. dream really. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is ironically m- what most of those barbarian chieftains wanted was they wanted the, the villa with the bath. Um, and like, like that's really what they were after, not tearing the whole thing down. But I mean, who doesn't, so, who doesn't want the villa with the bath? I mean, it sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> So why don't we end on this question, which is really the question your book seeks to explain. What did the, you know, the the quote unquote, the rest lack? Um, Why didn't they have the sort of colonial experience that the North Atlantic world did? So I I think we always run the risk when we're looking at something like this of overdetermining it, um, of, of, assuming that because it did happen, it had to happen. And so then we're going back and we're looking for the things that must inevitably therefore have led to this. And what I hope, if anything, even if the explanation itself, people don't buy it, I think the big thing that I hope people will get is the contingency that like, this is just the stuff that happens in this period did not have to happen. It definitely didn't have to happen the way it did. It didn't have to happen at all. Like if not for accidents of dynastic succession, if not for, you know, Columbus's ship, not like somehow him not sailing it into, into a, uh, into a storm and, and winding up uh, and winding up with nothing good happening. If not like Vasco da Gama barely made it back from India. If those things had not happened, would somebody have continued to pour money into those ventures? If uh, if Charles V had not happened to survive a somewhat sickly childhood, right, and end up inheriting all of these territories, would we have ended up with this age of constant dynastic warfare as a result? Maybe, but maybe not. You know, so I don't. Th- I think we shouldn't treat it as a given that all of that stuff had to happen. Definitely not that it had to happen the way that it did, and. The fact that these institutions that I've pointed to in, in this book, I think, end up playing a key role in that does not mean that they had to. It's like a whole bunch of puzzle pieces fitting together in a very specific way to produce the outcome that we know. And if anything, I would just like to think that we should we should approach these questions with a little more contingency in mind and also a little more humility. Um that just because something happens the way that it does does not mean that that was in any way foreordained. Well, Patrick Wyman, thank you so much. Everyone, buy the book, The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World. We really appreciate having you on, and you'll definitely be back if you'll have us. If you'll have me, I'd love to. (laughs) 